welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome to Great Shot Kid, the podcast on the Nerd Party Network that looks at the artistic and technical inspirations of Star Wars creators and looks at the larger picture of the behind-the-scenes work. I'm John. I'm Mike. And this week we are going to continue our series looking at the shots that define the Star Wars aesthetic with a focus this week on the prequel trilogy. Before we get into that, just wanted to mention, of course, that we're at thenerdparty.com. You can find the show there. You can also go to nerdparty.com slash contact, and you can select the show. If you drop us a line through that, an email comes to me and Mike, we can respond to you. You can find the show as part of the network Twitter handle, at Join Nerd Party. You can find us over on Facebook at facebook.com slash thenerdparty, and on Instagram as thenerdparty. If you want to grab our special attention, use the hashtag GreatShotKid, And that'll uh, send a special alert to one of the two of us so that we can get your feedback directly. So, going into the aesthetic of the prequel trilogy, Mike. Last week, we had our definitions of the aesthetic for the Star Wars original trilogy. You rightly pointed out lived in universe. Uh, I called it documentary uh, fiction. And so I guess the first question out of the gate is, for the prequel trilogy, do you think that the aesthetic held or do you think that the aesthetic changed? I would say it definitely changed um, as a result of uh, a number of things. The main one, well, all falling falling under the umbrella of technology, you know. Um, I mean, he's it's pretty well documented that he said that the reason why he waited so long to make the prequels was because... He wanted to do things which were um, technically impossible to do back in the 80s. Uh, and um, I, I think that we see that manifest itself in, in different ways throughout uh, this trilogy. And I think that, uh, yeah, it's it's because of that, the look of these movies is substantially different from the look of the uh, original trilogy. So you don't think that the lived-in aesthetic holds true, or did you see it creeping in at any point? Did you see any sort of adjustment to the aesthetic as it went through? I think he he was trying to do it. I think the um, problem that he ran into, in a sense, and, I mean, he's tried to justify it in certain ways. I mean, there's two things going on. One, since it's all being built from scratch, there is more of an artificial nature to it. And I know the original was all built from scratch too, but it was built from scratch in such a way that there was still this um, connection to reality. For example, making lightsaber handles out of camera parts instead of, you know, having them, you know, manufactured by machines and making a, a spaceport out of, you know, garbage that you would find in, you know, a, a car graveyard or something like that instead of, doing it in something which has been completely planned out months in advance or years in advance and created digitally, you know? I think by by its nature, there's there's a bit of chaos which is sort of introduced to doing things the way that they did them in the original trilogy. And even if you want to add that sort of, like, layer of lived in you know whether it's dirt or wear and tear on top of whatever it is you created you know there's still only so much that you can do 
and have it sort of have that effect. So I don't know. I, I think that that's, that's kind of where the aesthetic changed. And I think the, the other place where it changed in terms of like the photography is that he definitely sort of took an approach of placing the camera wherever he wanted to without regard to reality in a sense. You know, it was kind of the same approach that Orson Welles took with Citizen Kane, coming up with, with place. And I mean, Robert Zemeckis does this all the time too. And by doing that, you gain an interesting perspective on reality and yet you lose that documentary feel because the whole time you're thinking, how are you going to put a camera there? Sure. Or how are you going to put a camera there if you're a documentary filmmaker or whatever? So I think those two things really led to a shift in um, the style of this. In addition to the fact that he fully embraces uh, the aesthetic qualities of digital photography. He's not trying to make it look like film, you know, just, you know, uh, with a, with only cheaper or whatever. He went full on into digital and said like, this is a better looking thing and I'm going to embrace that and alter the style of the movies, uh, in order to reflect it. Sure. So all of those things to me, you know, led to a, a very different look for the prequels than for the originals. I I don't disagree with you. I I, uh, I dropped the word documentary from my description of the aesthetic. So, what is your description of the aesthetic for the prequels? Um, my description of the aesthetic for the prequels is. Um, if I had to choose like one word, one word or a phrase, we we were allowed to have, you know, a, a phrase before if we wanted to. It doesn't have okay. to be just one word. I'm going to go with digital. I think there's a lot of things that fall under that, but I think when I think of the aesthetic of the prequels, I think digital. Okay. Not Bobby digital, like uh, the RZA uh, released years ago, but just digital. Okay. Yes. Uh, for me, I actually, I, I don't, I don't refute what you're saying. I, I agree, obviously, that he embraced the technology, that he felt uh, unrestrained in terms of what he was now able and allowed to introduce into things. And I would actually use the phrase photographic hyperreality for the aesthetic that he uses in the prequels. And for me, I like I know what shots reflect that because it it was it was sort of lurking in the back of my mind. I didn't have the terminology for it, but then there was some interview along the way where I believe it was McCallum in an interview mentioned some of the western frontier painters that were influencing Lucas's uh aesthetic for the prequel trilogy and I, it suddenly clicked from an art history class that I'd taken where we covered that time period and how hyper-reality was their whole goal, was to make, it, like the, the, there was a whole wave of artists where they weren't just trying to depict going out into the West and settling. They were almost, they were trying to sell it. It was almost like propaganda for wagon trains to say, wow, look at this. This is the best majesty you could possibly see. And... In those paintings, it's reality, but it, it's turned up a notch in terms of its its hues and its saturations and everything that's going on in, in the in the painting itself. And I think that very much uh, is there in the prequel aesthetic. So we're at the Phantom Menace 
with our, our first pick for shots. And so I'm really curious. What about the Phantom Menace? What shot in the Phantom Menace, if you had to pick one, defines your aesthetic for you? The big thing for me with the Phantom Menace, the thing that I kind of took away from it as being, you know, sort of like what made that movie work as well as it did uh, back in the day and even now is the idea of world building, the idea of doing things that you couldn't do before and really sort of um, eliminating limitations (laughs) in a sense and, uh, you know, just sort of going all out for it. And creating worlds, you know, with with new uh, um, creatures and new environments and new everything, and being able to put the camera wherever you want and not having to worry about figuring out how, because you know, nine times out of ten, it's a virtual camera or whatever, in, in a lot of ways. So for me, the shot which defines episode one, and maybe even the prequels on the whole, is uh, the shot where they are flying in their little shuttle uh, from their ship uh, that had just landed on Coruscant to their, you know, hotel or whatever, wherever they were going. And you really get to see all of Coruscant in all of its glory, I guess, for the first time. That, to me, is, is... you know, the definition of the look of, of episode one. Okay. I, you know, I, uh, I, I can see that. And it, it definitely speaks to digital because there, you know, there was some model stuff in use, but it was very much heavily replicated. And then the, the larger background, you know, it's the, I think that's a, a good shot to define things because it very clearly defines the move away from the artist's paintbrush that made those backgrounds, those extended backgrounds into the computer that made those extended backgrounds. So I, I, I could definitely see that. For for me, I actually wind up with a shot that has probably the least amount of digital manipulation of something in, in Phantom Menace or one of, I mean, outside of, you know, like Anakin running in the desert or something. But, well, even that has Darth Maul behind him. But anyway, um, it's actually a shot that was in the trailers, the original trailers for it. And it's a shot where Padme is on Coruscant in Palpatine's chambers, and she's got the two handmaidens in red uh, on her on her sides behind her, and she's got the kabuki makeup on, and she's got the hairdo with the the gold headdress on it, and she's wearing this very Japanese inspired gray, uh, gray and and cream colored ensemble, and then behind her is this perfect circle that's perfectly framing her head, and then beyond that is a you know the the balcony with Coruscant out beyond it and when I look at that shot it belongs in Star Wars but at the same time it represents what I think is what Lucas ultimately wanted to go for with the the evolution of technology which was and speaking to your virtual camera comment the ability to create this perfect shot this is there is no doubt that when I look at that picture, this is somebody who painstakingly went back to his uh, photographer roots and created a picture. It was about that still picture and about that composition. And this is something that I could see in an art gallery somewhere where somebody had this picture, this futuristic picture of something. And so for me, that that speaks to that aesthetic for me. 
Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I, it's, I, I guess I guess I can see that um, in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it really does kind of go against the, the documentary thing from the earlier movies. Um, but, uh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so we've got our shots from The Phantom Menace. I find it interesting that neither one of us picked anything from the Jedi Council chambers. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, was that ever in contention for you? I guess I hadn't really thought of it, no. But in in a lot of ways, I guess that would work because it's showing an expansion of the story because, like, the, the original movies really sort of did a good job of, of um, showing how big the universe is by finding the little nooks and crannies and, uh, you know, kind of like showing sort of the diversity in that galaxy. Whereas with the prequels, it was really about, you know, the sort of like epic hero shots. It was about, you know, and I mean that in the sense of like, this is something that you would see on the news. These were like the, you know, the the landmarks of the galaxy. You know, we were finally seeing all of this. It wasn't like the back alleys. It was the capitals and everything. And, you know, the Jedi Council, I think, represents that. And the other thing that the Jedi Council represents, which I think is indicative of this style, is uh, a, a wide variety of creatures, both practical and CGI. And uh, that obviously is something that he really embraced uh, with episode one as well. Well, I mean, it's something that I think since the original film, he's constantly trying to redress how disappointed he was with the cantina. You know, everybody knows all the stories by this point where, you know, the guy got sick and then none of the stuff matched it exactly. And so you see Jabba's palace as his attempt to say cantina, but bigger. And then in a sense, even the Jedi Council Chamber is a reflection of cantina, but bigger. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so we we get to probably um, the film of the series that is most treated like a redheaded stepchild. And that is going to be Attack of the Clones which I personally love. I, I've loved it since I saw it. Um, some people question my sanity because of that. But going forward, where do you land on a single shot to demonstrate the aesthetic for the prequel trilogy out of Attack of the Clones? This one was really hard nailing down a s- single shot because I think there's a lot of shots which represent what you know the, the look of this movie means to me. And you know, just like episode one was pushing forward in terms of technology with CGI and stuff like that. I think episode two is pushing forward in terms of technology with it being obviously the first one shot uh, digitally. And one of the things which struck me from the very first time I saw that trailer on 35 millimeter was how colorful everything was and how sharp everything looked you know and how devoid of grain it was mm-hmm. and everything like mm-hmm. that and like if i were to think of a shot which represents that more than anything i mean this is going to sound like a completely bizarre nothing shot but it's the shot of r2 in padme's room at night when he's you know guarding her as she sleeps because you have like these, you know, very, very saturated blues. You've got the lights coming off of R2's, you know, head. It is a a practical shot, you know, or most of it is anyway. And by choosing that, you really get to see like the texture on this, 
you know, lived in, you know, robot like you haven't seen before because it's been in some ways obscured by by grain. I don't mean that as a knock on film or anything like that, but it, it was a much less noisy image and it really made me look at this thing which we've seen for, you know, four movies now. This is the fifth one in a in a different light and literally. <laughs> and um <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that that, that shot to me and also I think it was in the trailer so maybe that's why it always stands out to me but that shot to me represents the aesthetic of episode two yeah no it's a beautiful shot I think there are a lot of very beautiful shots in uh, in attack of the clones there there are a lot that I could gravitate toward as as I was actually looking through screenshots online and you know trying to select one you know, I, I looked at, uh, there's there's the shot of Dooku first walking into the chamber where Obi-Wan is floating in his you know, his invisible harness, basically. And you have that last shot, which I think would speak just as much to your, your digital uh, observations of the troops assembled on the ground at the end that was also in the trailer, where I remember the first time I saw it, it took my breath away because I thought it was just so gorgeous. Like, I, I was like, oh, there's, look at it. It's so beautiful. Uh, coming back to the the sort of hyper reality, though, I lean toward the shot of Anakin riding the swoop bike with the sun setting behind him because that looks directly out of one of those Western hyper realistic paintings. It really like it looks like one of those paintings come to life, but with a, a futuristic bike in it. Um. But where I wound up, and this might be an odd way, maybe I, maybe it should be the sunset one. I don't know what it is, but the shot that jumped out at me was uh, Dex and Obi-Wan. It's a side shot. You see both of them sitting at the table in the diner talking to each other. And for me, in that one shot, it's just like the one of Padme uh, that, I, that I mentioned for The Phantom Menace, where everything is just painstakingly arranged and perfect and it's exactly the way it's supposed to look and you can tell how composed it is but at the same time you see almost every influence on George Lucas's life in that one shot and it again to me becomes this hyper reality you have this creature here that was lurking somewhere in the artistic abyss and somebody designed and Lucas said, oh no, I've seen that guy in a dream somewhere and wouldn't it have been neat if he was talking with me in a diner and I, this is the type of diner I went in as a kid and here's the coffee cup and the napkin dispenser and here's the neon sign in the window and it's, it's almost like he has, uh, he has attenuated his own memory in this shot. And I think that's probably why I land on it. But very close contention is the one of Anakin uh, going through the landscape trying to find his mom. That, that Anakin landscape one always stuck out to me because I used to go on this like home theater forum. I think it was called the home theater forum, to be honest. And uh, this was like Aptly right named. at the advent of like HD TVs and stuff like that. And I was really sort of like. I was like, I want a 16 by 9 TV. Like, I saw storyboards for the Gendi Tartakovsky uh, Clone Wars, and I saw that it was in 16 by 9. And I'm like, my goal is to have a 16 by 9 TV by the time this thing is shown on TV. And, you got to have goals, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then, you know, like one of the the um, people who kept on posting in the thread for this one TV, which I was researching extensively, had that image as like his tag image. 
So I'd see it every time he posted. And for some reason, it like stuck in my head. And like, that was one of the first things that I put on when I got my HD TV. Like that was like the de- definition of what an HD image was when I, when I got my new TV. Oh, that's cool. I'm surprised it wasn't the one that they had on the DVD for Attack of the Clones that was supposed to be your THX tuning image. Do you remember? It, it was That was of Obi-Wan on Geonosis with his Jedi Starfighter. Uh, okay. you were, that was how you're supposed to, you, you went through the whole THX thing, you know, adjust your light level until it's this and adjust this until it's this. And, you know, if you can see the gray box, then it's wrong sort of thing. Yeah. Which was always maddening because you'd adjust it for Attack of the Clones and then you'd put on one of your other movies and it wouldn't look right. It was just, it was, it was frustrating for me. But, yeah, you, you know. needed to really go with the uh, digital video essentials disc, uh, which, you know, was set to reference levels across the board, unlike the THX one, which was like, each disc is different. And it's like, well, it shouldn't be, you know, you, you guys should have standards in the industry. You should be able to do this once and never have to do it again. But yes, whatever. I agree. You gotta, you gotta sell your product, <laughs> I guess. Whatever. I, I guess. I guess. Uh, okay. So the, those are our shots for Attack of the Clones, which brings us to, uh, for this episode, our topping shot. The shot from Revenge of the Sith that defines the aesthetic of the prequels. I'm kind of thinking we're going to have the same shot here. I mean, this to me was by far the easiest because it it seems the most obvious for a lot of reasons. But it's the shot where Anakin and Obi-Wan's blades cross and the big, you know, lava thing shoots up in the back and everything like that. Like the, the, you know, sort of like, I don't know, climax of that moment in, in in that fight. Right? You know what I'm talking about? I do know exactly what you're talking about, and it was definitely one of the ones that, that I, I my finger hovers on. And the only other one I would put in, I think I do agree with you, because it's the, it's a, a, a you know, a, it was a real volcano erupting that they morphed into this thing where they're on a walkway that doesn't exist when they're really in a, a you know, a soundstage, but it's, I yeah, I, I think that we do converge on that. The only one that I would throw out there as a secondary contention is there's another shot from roughly the same time uh, during the film where they fall, they jump down onto this pipe that of course doesn't exist. And you see in the shot, Obi-Wan, his feet are in the foreground and Anakin is balancing himself with his saber held out backwards. uh, You know, and you can see that they're doing this balancing act and it's such a convincing incredible shot where you you know in the back of your mind because you watch the behind the scenes stuff it's just two guys on a green floor with a green room standing within these painted guidelines and then you look at it and it looks like two guys fighting with lightsabers you know over a chasm but I do think the more identifiable one and the one that definitely you know, speaks to both the hyper-realism and the digital is having that volcano go off in the background uh, while they are attacking. So six movies and we finally converge on a shot. So I'd say that's an accomplishment. Yeah, and I mean, the thing about that shot, the reason why I think it, it really speaks to it is for one thing, it's an update of the shot that we had in episode 
six, right? I mean, where Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker cross lightsabers or whatever. But whereas that one was in a room with, you know, in in front of a guy, you know, and, and it was like in the yeah. foreground and the close-up was of the, the guy. You know, this is, you know, the culmination of this for this prequel tri- trilogy, but also, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the entire franchise, sort of the thing that we've been waiting for. And obviously, you know, it's a, it's a mirror of, um, of episode six, you know, it rhymes. And, um, <laughs> the fact that it's the same thing mm-hmm. only on a much larger scale with a whole bunch of crazy weird stuff all composited together to make like this this epic moment out of what was a really small moment uh first time around i think really you know kind of speaks to what it was he was doing with the prequel trilogy compared to the original trilogy. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would be very interested to know if uh, our shots have landed on the mark. Uh, you know, if, if they are great shots uh, for all you kids out there, uh, or if you have feedback. Um, we got some feedback on the last show. We very much appreciate it. Um, you know, as aforementioned, you can reach out to us through all of those different channels. This is the part of the show lately where we would typically uh, go into the next chapter of Splinter of the Mind's Eye, but we want to give you crazy kids an opportunity to catch up, as it were, uh, because I know that we uh, we started and we we got underway, and so we're we're taking a breather this week so that everybody can catch up, and we're going to get back into Splinter of the Mind's Eye next week with Chapter Three. So read Chapters One and Two, catch up, and we will get ch- get to Chapter Three next week. Uh, while they are reading up on. Splinter of the Mind's Eye, Mike, where can they find you online? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can also find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com doing a show called Commentary Track Stars, and you can find me on Track.fm doing a show called The Edge and another show called Stage 9 with you. Yes, yeah, Stage 9 with me over on Trek FM, where we are knee-deep in Discovery Fever uh, looking at the creators of the latest chapter of the Star Trek saga. You can also find me back here on the Nerd Party co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, a different kind of Star Wars show with Matthew Rushing. And you can find me out there in the wild co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig, which is just uh, some zaniness that we uh, we whip up from week to week. And if you would care to interact with me online, look for Kessel Junkie. That's my name on pretty much every social network you would care to interact with me on. So we will see you next week on Great Shot Kid as we delve into not just Alan Dean Foster's next chapter, chapter three in Splinter of the Mind's Eye, but also shots from the non-Lucas Star Wars movies that define the aesthetic and see if it has changed there yet. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.